Welcome to Ask in Austria. I'm Dr. Jonathan Newman. I'm an associate professor of economics and finance at Bryan College, and I've got a, a list of questions here to go through, and I'll uh, give it my best shot at, at answering them. Uh, some of the questions were uh, repeats of each other, or they're asking roughly the same thing, and so I tried to combine those. So we've got a good uh, group of questions here. So the first one is from uh, Tyler Frings. What are the core tenets of Austrian economics? And really the first thing that came to my mind uh, as a distinction for the Austrian school is the particular method that we use. Uh, one thing that separates the Austrian school of thought from really all of the other schools of thought in economics is the method that we use. And so you might have heard the term praxeology, uh, but really praxeology is, is just a term that means applying logical deduction to the action axiom. And the action axiom is, is just the definition of, of human action. Human action is purposeful behavior. It's using means to attain ends. And so we, we start from that starting point, and then we develop the rest of economic theory using logical deduction. So we talk about what are means and what are ends and uh, how, how can people try to attain their ends. And like one of the first laws that you'll get to by, by pursuing this line is the law of diminishing margin utility that, uh, and an increase in your stock of means means that you can accomplish more of your ends, but those ends must necessarily be less important to you compared to with, uh, with a smaller stock of means. So that's the sort of uh, the way that we progress through, starting with the action axiom. That's the way we progress through all of the different laws of economics with just a few very safe uh, assumptions thrown in along the way. But if you look at the, the mainstream, if you look at what happens in in, uh, in most schools and in most mainstream economic journals? The uh, the method is much different. They use mathematical models. They uh, they consider humans as uh, uh, as ba basically we, we make choices by by uh, figuring out an optimal level of utility that we can achieve by consuming a certain bundle of of goods, um, and it's all quantitative. So you achieve that bundle of goods by finding the, the tangency point between your indifference curve and the budget set. And so there's a huge difference um, in the way Austrians and the, and the mainstream treat consumers and really all throughout the rest of the science, there's a huge difference. And, and the main reason for that is the, the difference in method. So that's one of the uh, core tenets, I would say, is our distinctive uh, method. But another one is our value and price theory. So I was just talking about uh, the way we make choices. Uh, from the Austrian point of view, value is subjective and it's ordinal, meaning it's not uh, cardinal. Um, and that leads us to a very, um, since that's a true way of talking about the way people value things, that leads us to a very rich understanding of the way prices form and also the meaning inside of prices, which is sort of the, uh, that's the building block or the starting point for Mises to talk about the, the the critique of socialism that he had. So since we realize that prices are meaningful, that they convey, they reflect the opportunity costs um, elsewhere in the economy, then, then we have this, this brilliant critique of socialism, which I would, I would consider another distinction of the Austrian school. And another, another like really critical one is the business cycle theory that you'll see. So, so I just listed out those few distinctions of the Austrian school as, as really what sets us apart from the rest. So it's the method, it's our value and price theory, as well as uh, we 
we place a special emphasis on the role of the entrepreneur. And also we have a very rich capital theory. So really everything we do is sort of unique, but it's hard to, it's hard to narrow it down to just a few core tenets. And then finally, the policy conclusions that even though policy prescriptions are technically outside the boundaries of pure value-free economic science, like if you, if you assume that people want human flourishing, then the policy conclusions that, that you come to in Austrian economics is typically very, very radically free market. Um, and there's this brilliant critique of socialism from Mises and also the critique of central banking and fractional reserve banking with uh, business cycle theory. Next question comes from Barry Jackson. In economics, what stops companies from limiting supply of a good in order to achieve a higher price? I'm an Austrian and a libertarian, but this is a leftist point that I've always found puzzling. Like in the case of gas prices, why would a company not limit production in order to achieve a higher price from low supply? So somebody's been uh, studying uh, mainstream neoclassical monopoly theory. The answer to this is like, so like what's stopping a company or somebody or just a person from, from limiting how much they produce and selling on the market so that they can ch charge a higher price? And the answer is nothing. Nothing stops people from doing it, doing that. And it's actually that conclusion that led Rothbard to totally um, turn over the, the mainstream or typical uh, definitions of monopoly. And it actually caused him to differ with Mises on monopoly theory as well. So Rothbard n noticed that there's, there's really, you can't say that somebody is a monopoly simply because they restrict supply and then they increase price because that applies to everybody. And if it applies to everybody, then that means it's a, it's a bad definition because we like definitions to be able to say, this is, this is the thing and this isn't the thing. But if you have a definition that incorporates every single person in the economy, then it means that there's probably something wrong with your analysis. So Rothbard noted that there's nothing stopping anybody from doing this. So I, like right now, I'm not working. This is this is just pleasure for me. It's, it's leisure time for me to do this. So I've, I've, I stop working for a, a few days a week, a few hours every day. And, and the reason, and I'm able to charge a higher price for my labor because of that, as compared to the case where I'm working 24 seven. So everybody is able to do this. Uh, what what is limiting is consumer demand. What's limiting is consumer demand and also the the alternative uses for the factors of production that go into making the things that consumers want. So if consumers really want X and you've got a, a channel factors of production over to, to making that X, then that's that's what's encouraging production over there. And that's, that would cause production to be limited or at least a profitable production to be limited in other places. So, so entrepreneurs are the ones who are deciding how are factors of production used in a way that's profitable and, and is therefore satisfying consumers. So that's what, that's what is guiding the use of resources in the market economy. Tim Weissung says, assuming just one large infusion of money into an economy, shouldn't prices level off at new higher levels as the new money to goods ratio is realized across all levels in an economy? In other words, as long as new money printing ceases, shouldn't inflation resolve itself after a while? And if not, what would drive a continued increase in prices? So uh, th this sort of depends on the banking system that is the assumption here. But if it's a full reserve banking system and there's just a like a and it's a gold standard, suppose there's a big uh, 
discovery of, of new gold. And then there's no more gold discovery. So we just discover a certain amount. Then this would, this would, you would have the price increases. You would have the Cantillon effects. There'd be a total revolution in prices throughout the, throughout the economy. But, but you're right. It would come to a, a stop. There would be a stopping point. It wouldn't just keep increasing and increasing. Now, uh, if you uh, are changing the bank, the banking system's uh, reserve ratio, uh, if you're allowing them to multiply uh, loans, um, then that can cause there to be further increases in the money supply and therefore continued increases in prices. But just a, a one-off increase in the money supply that doesn't that doesn't lead to a continued increase in, in prices forever. Next question. Dylan Shepard says, I uh, just wanted to ask a question clarifying the discussion between free bankers, the more traditional Rothbardian view, giving a general overview of the arguments made by both sides. What text can we use to look into the discussion between the two groups and how it relates to Austrian business cycle theory? Thanks. So I, I can offer a, a summary of the, the free banking side, the fractional reserve free banking side, but just to I'm biased here. I, I'm definitely on the Rothbardian side of this debate. Uh, but the fractional reserve free banking uh, people like uh, uh, George Selgin and Larry White, they would say that uh, banks are like other firms in the economy, that they can respond to profit, the profit and loss mechanism, just like other banks, and including they can respond to, to, to risk as well. And so they're, they can respond to a change in the demand for money by increasing the amounts of fiduciary media. They can increase the amount of loans, they can create credit, and this is a response to consumer demand for more money. So it's so they see banks as responding to consumer demand in both directions. Um, and so because banks are responding to consumer demand and there's this profit and loss mechanism by which if one bank decides to, to lend out way, way too much, so they become way over leveraged, then there's this possibility that uh, other banks would come in and, and try to redeem the deposits at the overextended bank uh, that would put them out of business. So they see that they see the banking system being set up this way as, as self-reinforcing and also responding to uh, consumer demand uh, or just general demand for money. On the Rothbardian side, they they would say that it's not uh, it's not just the a change in demand for money or mismatch between the demand for money and how much money there is that causes business cycle, it's a, it's a change in the availability and the amount of loans, the amount of credit, uh, and how, and if that's different from the social rate of time preference. So if we expand credit beyond what people have actually saved, then that, that triggers the uh, expansion of investment in longer term production processes and, and encourages overconsumption as well. You get, and the malinvestment, like I mentioned with the, the capital goods industries, and so, and so you get the boom and the bust. Uh, so it's not for the Rothbardians. It's not based on just it's not just banks responding or being able to or, or being able to uh, respond to consumer demand for money. It's based on a mismatch between time preference and the availability of credit. Uh, you asked for uh, what text you can look into. So there's the, uh, the theory of free banking by George Selgin. Uh, that's his. Uh, I think that was one of his first books where he sort of explicated that uh, free banking idea. Uh, there's the theory of monetary institutions by Larry White. And then on the Rothbardian side, there's the mystery of banking by Rothbard. 
Um, and even though it was written way before Rothbard, the theory of money and credit by Mises actually talks through an increase in uh, fiduciary media, an, in, an increase in credit through the banking system that triggers the, the business cycle. So Mises would definitely be on the Rothbard uh, side of this debate. And then more recently, there's uh, uh, Robert Murphy has Modern Money uh, Mechanics, where he talks through the, this debate. Um, and then if you're interested in looking in the in some uh, academic journals, there's uh, a back and forth that sort of started with uh, fractional reserve, free banking, some quibbles by Vegas and Howden. At least I think that was the, the first one in, in the back and forth. And so then you can sort of see from there, if you're smart with your Google Scholar searching, you can find lots of articles going back and forth. And then another uh, great article by Laura Davidson, uh, it's called Against Monetary Disequilibrium Theory and Fractional Reserve Free Banking, um, I think does a really good job of, of explaining some of the flaws in the, in the fractional reserve free banking view. Uh, her, her contention is that they're, they're missing out on one of the components of the demand for money. They only focus on the other component. Sachin Patil says, if interest rates are artificially brought down, why is it that capital industries borrow? Consumer goods, along with consumers, uh, will borrow when interest rates are down, don't they? Uh, why is it that capital goods industries are more sensitive to interest rate changes? Uh, while explaining ABCT, what do you mean by capital consumption? Uh, and he had, uh, there's another question by hand that I'm going to read as well, but let me just quickly answer the capital consumption question. Capital consumption simply means that you're eating into your capital stock. So you have a certain amount of saved resources that's used for production, the tools and equipment, the factories, all, all the machines, everything that we use in production except for land and labor. So that's all of our that's all, all of our capital goods. And they require uh, maintenance and they require uh, being replaced when they break down. And so Capital consumption simply means that we're not dedicating resources to that replacement and maintenance level of, of our capital goods. So if we only if if we eat into that, then we call it capital consumption. The opposite of capital consumption would be capital accumulation. And that means from one period to the next, you have additional capital goods and additional productivity. But uh, let me read your next question. Same same person. I have a, a query related to ABCT. As per ABCT, artificially lowering of interest rates leads to malinvestment in capital industries, but there will also be investment in consumer industries, as well as consumers taking loans for their consumption, as lowering of interest rates will encourage them as well. Let me stop right there and just respond to that part. So it's not just that uh, a decrease in interest rates encourages more consumer borrowing. Uh, there's also just a, a plain old income effect, where if if we're increasing the supply of money and it's being spent out in the economy, then wages and incomes are, are increasing. So that and that income increase can also uh, turn into or does turn into an increase in, in consumer spending. So it's not just the new availability of consumer loans. It's all you would also have that even if all of the brand new money was just going to producers, uh, because there would be an, an increase in incomes that would be spent on consumer goods. So also ABCT says that uh, some long-term investment won't be completed because of a lack of resources as there's a genuine lack of savings. But <laughs> I like this part, but it doesn't happen that one fine morning we wake up and say, gosh, there's no resources to complete my project. So I have to abandon them. They will bid for those resources and look to complete their projects. So actually the answer to your question is actually in your question. So 
you, you say that they won't wake up fine one fine morning and say, gosh, there's no more resources. And then you say they will bid for those resources and look to complete their projects. But that, but that does happen. So it does happen where we wake up one day. It doesn't have to be a fine morning. They, we, we, at some point, we realize that the, the capital goods that I need to create or to purchase to complete this production project that I've started is too expensive for me for, for this project to be uh, completed profitably. So, the, so it's not like you just like you're looking around in the economy and you don't see capital goods anywhere. It, what that looks like from the entrepreneur's perspective is that the capital goods are more ex- expensive. The, the relative scarcity of all of those middle stage capital goods has caused their, will cause them to be much more expensive than you anticipate. And usually, typically the trigger event for this happening is uh, the central bank is, is easing up on the credit. So there's some restriction of credit either uh, through the central bank or the banking system. And that's what causes everybody to reduce their demand like they just simply can't go out and purchase all of the capital goods to finish their production projects. Um, and, so, and so sometimes it looks like that where they just, it's too expensive, not necessarily because a big change in price happened all of a sudden, but it's too expensive simply because I, I don't have sufficient credit now, or it's too expensive now for me to borrow to purchase those uh, capital goods. Great question. Uh, Calvin uh, Mignon. I think that's how you pronounce. Talk about some easy to understand points. <laughs> we have been talking about some some heavy stuff so far. Talk about some easy to understand points on why a central bank such as the Federal Reserve is harmful to the people and the economy to a person that otherwise believes in a free market. So th- this is a good question. Uh, you just see a lot of economists like this where they're generally free market, but then they make a big exception for the Fed. And so... Uh, so I think a good point here is, is simply to say that interest rates are, are priced just like other prices are in the economy, and uh, but they're actually more important than other prices. So interest rates are a part of all production. So all production and also all credit, all loan transactions, interest rate is, is a part of that process. Interest rates are the price that, uh, that borrowers and lenders uh, pay each other. But they're also interest rate also appears in production as well. So if you have this big government agency that is doing something to fiddle with interest rates, then it's really not that controversial to say that they would end up imposing the wrong interest rate, that interest rates would be too low sometimes or interest rates would be too high, uh, as opposed to if we just allow markets to prevail, where we just allow people to, to make decisions on their own. Then we know that prices will clear the market and we could say the same thing about the interest rate so that, that's one like if you're trying to convince somebody who knows some econ why is the federal reserve harmful all you have to say is that interest rates are an important price and that we shouldn't mess with them but there's also all of the cantillon effects in the business cycle so uh, the cantillon effects refer to the unevenness in increases in the money supply so if we increase the money supply it doesn't go out broadly to everybody at the same time. Uh, it it comes into the economy at a particular point, which means that some people get to bid up prices first. Their incomes increase first, and they buy stuff. And then there's a, a second set of receivers, and I'm going out this way because it's like a ripple effect. There's a second set of people who receive money from the first set of people, and so now they're able to bid up the prices of the goods and services that they want. And so the, the money sort of sequences out that way. 
And the, the result is a total change, a total upheaval in uh, incomes and wealth and prices, um, relative prices as well, uh, throughout the economy. So there's, it totally changes everything about the economy in a way that, that favors some and punishes others. So if you're at the end of that chain, if you're the last one to have your income increase, but you have to pay all of these high prices first because everybody else is joining the party with higher incomes and they can they can buy more stuff uh, and you're last that means you have to pay all those high prices before your income increases so you have permanent that, that uh, mises talked about this a lot you have permanent effects on income and wealth as, as a result of of uh, uh the money supply increasing and then, like I've already uh, briefly talked about, there you have the business cycle. So, if the central bank is increasing the money supply, and money's coming in through uh, credit channels, if it's coming through financial intermediaries, then there's an effect on interest rates. There's an effect on the total supply of credit. You have artificial credit that is bidding up prices in capital goods industries, causing entrepreneurs to not have the right information about how long the production project should be. So they start. They start the, these longer term projects when really we only have the savings for the, the shorter term projects and also consumers over consume. So really just all around. So the question was, why is the Federal Reserve or why is central banking harmful? There you go. There's a bunch of reasons why. Um, I don't know. Maybe it would be beneficial for me to talk about the other side. So what, what do proponents of central banking say? Like why, why do we have central banking if it seems so obvious that it has all of these harmful effects? I know this wasn't the question, but I just sort of feel obligated to say it for the sake of fairness. Um, the, the proponents of central banking, at least early on, they had this idea that the needs of trade uh, change seasonally. Like sometimes we would have, we would need a lot of money because there's a lot of trade going on. And then there are other times where we don't need as much money because there's less trade, less exchange going on. So the argument for central banking at the start was we needed, or at least an, an elastic currency where we can increase and decrease the supply of money, but that usually goes hand in hand with the central bank. It is that they were, they said that we need uh, an elastic currency so that we can meet the needs of trade um, in that way. Um, but uh, I mean, since then, that was like way back at the um, turn of the century. Uh, since then uh, there've been other, rationales for central banking like it regulates the banking system um, it can uh, provide a backstop for banks um, if they become overextended like i mentioned they can be a lender of last resort uh, they they are the bank for the the central government so if you want a central government that's doing all sorts of things uh, and you want them to be able to borrow easily then central banking is is a good idea but notice all of the ifs that I had to say before that. So that's that's what uh, people who are proponents of central banking would say. Uh, the people who are against central banking, the Federal Reserve, say that those benefits are either wrong, like you, like we don't want the federal government to be able to borrow as much as it wants, uh, or we don't need an elastic currency. There's no reason for us to expand the money supply because the needs of trade have expanded. We already have something that can change when the needs of trade change, and that is prices. So prices can adjust up and down. We don't need the money supply to go to do this sort of thing with the with the rest of the economy. And so those uh, people who are against central banking would also say not only do are those benefits dubious, 
but there's all of these harmful effects like I, I mentioned before. Next up, Richard Ashley. <clears throat> How can I explain to my Republican boomer parents that punitive tariffs are just another harmful government intervention like price controls or the minimum wage, which they are against and that they have unintended consequences that outweigh any benefits? Uh, well, if they're not convinced by the uh, whole price controls uh, analogies so, uh, or uh, tax, so a tariff is just a tax. So if they they don't see how tariffs is, is just another form of tax. Uh, maybe another line of argument that you could use with your parents uh, would be to, to say that there's really no difference or ask them if they would be willing to impose the same policies between states. So you, so tariffs are, are taxes on, on imports that are coming across national boundaries. But if, what if you just change that to Alabama and Georgia or between cities? So like, what if you just did, you know, Birmingham and Montgomery's two cities in Alabama. So if you see how, how taxes and trade barriers between cities or, or just over state lines would be harmful, then there's really nothing ab about changing that boundary to a, a national boundary that, that changes the, the analysis. I don't know. That might work for you. <clears throat> uh, just in general, though, since we're talking about parents, I don't know. Is it is it worthwhile to argue with your parents about these sorts of things? I don't know. Maybe you should just, you know, just have fun and talk about different things with your parents instead of arguing about tariffs and price controls. OK, Jeremy Aguilar says, is there a recommended list of books for a decent understanding of Austrian economics? Now, th this question showed up a lot and uh, or this type of question, just a recommended reading. And I love giving recommended reading. And the, the first three books that came to mind for a decent understanding of Austrian economics, I'm thinking of somebody who really just has no idea uh, what economics is in general, much less so what Austrian economics is. I think the first uh, book to read, and this was the first book that I read in Austrian economics, is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. It's just a great starting point because he he the, the one lesson is when you're doing economic analysis, you have to take into account all affected parties, and you have to consider the long-run consequences as well as the short-run consequences. So you can't just look at the short-run, and you can't just look at the effects of a policy or event on one particular person. And so he takes that that one lesson. Sorry to, to ruin the. Sorry to spoil the fun for you. He takes that one lesson and he applies it to a bunch of different cases. So he talks about tariffs, and he talks about uh, credit and central banking and price controls and and. Uh, machinery, um, causing unemployment, all these sorts of things. So it's a great little book um, that applies the same lesson over and over again. So it's a really good way to, to start your, your reading in economics. And then there, uh, there's a book by Robert Murphy called Choice, where he has uh, sort of distilled human action by Ludwig von Mises. Uh, human action is a big, thick book. Uh, I think you've got it right here. So it's, it's a pretty thick book. Um, um, and it's got you know, lots of big words and lots of philosophical uh, questions in there. And so Robert Murphy has distilled that into a smaller book that's um, more digestible. And then another book that I wrote down here, this was, I think, the second book that I read in Austrian economics was Meltdown by Tom Woods. And uh, the reason this is great is, is because you see how an Austrian economist explains the great financial crisis. So the, we had this big financial crisis in 2008. Where did it come from? 
how do we explain it? And it's just a great little bit of, uh, of economic history. And I, I really do think, I think it was the second um, Austrian economics book that I read. And I'm glad it was because it was my introduction to, to Austrian business cycle theory. And you, you just pick up on a lot of the other vocab in that process. And it's very, very easy to read as well. Tom Woods is a great author. Okay, here, uh, here's a, a question by Robert Crawford. This one's a little bit long. Let's see if I can boil it down. I'm a novice Austrian, but the Mises style Austrian economics, um, as well as I can understand, makes perfect sense to me. Hey, me too. I'm more into history when it comes to reading, and I don't read much on economics. However, do you think, um, let me skip to the question. If you, if you had, per se, a random country that wanted to try the gold standard as a government-sanctioned monetary system or gold banking system, whether it was government-sanctioned or not, and the people or government in that country had very little gold, how could you make that work? So he's got other questions here, but let me stop right there. So suppose we have a country with very little gold, but they want a, a gold standard. How could they make that work? And uh, it's actually a very interesting uh, conclusion in, in monetary theory. And Rothbard talked about this in uh, Mystery of Banking as well as other works. He, he said that uh, the supply of money doesn't matter. Any quantity of money in the economy is enough to, to, to be the money supply. Um, and so, so what that means is prices can just, nominal prices can just be whatever they need to be for that money supply, however small and however big it is, to be the money supply. So there's, there is no one optimal quantity of money. The optimal quantity of money is just whatever it is at, at, at that moment. And then prices can adjust or prices can be whatever they need to be to facilitate trade between persons in that economy. Uh, so if you have very, very, very little gold, then uh, you can have uh, prices that accommodate a small money supply. Um, and if you comment, if you will, uh, how one country on a gold standard against a world that had fiat currency could facilitate trade. So there, uh, so suppose the rest of the world is fiat currency, and then there's this one country with gold. Uh, we, we've actually had this so over the course of uh, uh, the 20th century, different countries around the world started abandoning the gold standard, which means that we had an exchange rate system in which some countries were still using gold and other countries had started using a fiat money. So you just you just trade trade the monies. It seems to me the country with the gold standard would trade all of its gold away. Now that's not necessarily true. Uh, and the reason why is because the the exchange rate is going to be based on people's demand for goods within that country and the demand for gold and also the demand for goods in other countries and the demand for that currency. So so like I said before, prices can adjust. It's not like you once you stick to a certain exchange rate between gold and the fiat currency that you have to stick to that price. It, and if that were the case, then, yeah, it's certainly possible that all the gold would leave the, the country. Um, but if if prices can can fluctuate, then that definitely wouldn't be the case. OK, hope that was. Beneficial talking through that Adam Cogshell. Is it possible to make a return to the gold standard in our current economy? Does the U.S. have enough gold to back all current U.S. dollar in, in circulation? So the first question is more of like a political. Well, I don't really, I don't know. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible to return to a gold standard. That that is that is feasible. Now, 
Now, how difficult it would be to convince enough people to, to make that happen, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's certain. I mean, we used to have a gold standard. We went off it, and it's that's not one of those irreversible things. We can certainly go back to a gold standard. Um, I don't think that's likely, at least in my lifetime. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but the second question, does the U.S. have enough gold to back all current U.S. dollar circulation? And the answer to this question is the same as my answer to uh, the previous person's question. Uh, and the answer is yes. So all, do we have enough gold in, in the United States right now to go back to a gold standard? And the answer is yes, because you, we could have any supply of gold and that could be a basis for uh, a gold standard. We could have a lot of gold. We could have a little bit of gold and it would still be okay. Be, and the reason why, like I said before, is because prices can adjust. Prices, prices can be whatever they need to be in order for any amount of money in the economy to, to work. <clears throat> Patrick Douglas writes, is there a derivation for the existence of time preference or is it considered a priori? Uh, I think that the time preference is, uh, is true and we know that prior to experience. I'm not really sure if that's where you're going with that question. So yeah, it is a priori uh, for us to know that time, the law of time preference. And the best way that I've found to explain it um, is based on it's based on Mises's uh, um, concept of removing felt uneasiness. So all action is aimed at removing felt uneasiness. So the, the reason we make choices, the reason we act, the reason we start to employ means to attain ends is because we are at least to some extent dissatisfied with the current state of affairs or with the state of affairs that would persist if we didn't act. So we only act because we think the desired state of affairs is achievable and better than what we have now. So that dissatisfaction with the present is what always motivates action. If you, so the way we get from that statement to time preferences, if you just think about, if you delay action or if you prolong action, I think is a better way to say it. If, if, you, uh, if you act in a certain way where you're extending the amount of time to get to the end, to get to the desired state of affairs. It means it's a longer period of time where you are feeling that, that uneasiness, that dissatisfaction. That's, that's a bunch of moments in time where you are dissatisfied with the current state of affairs. So the shorter you can make that, the less dissatisfaction you have. The, sh the shorter amount of time that, you, that it takes for you to get from the start of the action to the desired state of affairs, the better, because that's less dissatisfaction in those intervening moments. And so I think because of that, that, that is time preference. So we just prefer to have the satisfaction sooner uh, as opposed to later. So I, I don't think you have to do any sort of empirical work to figure that like, you don't have to run an experiment to figure that out. Notice that that's just based on the definition of an action and what motivates it. So Mises said it's a to remove felt uneasiness, or we just have this perennial, this constant uh, state of dissatisfaction with the present, and that's what motivates our action. So that's prior to uh, any sort of experiment or observation that we would make. Connor uh, Nepo says, some socialists and communists feel they have an answer to the knowledge problem. Hmm, I'd like to see it. They have taken to believing that high-powered computers running sophisticated algorithms on an autonomous basis can perform the role of central planning. Uh, barring the limits on technology, 
though it is an obviously substantial limitation. Uh, what would be the modern Austrian critique of such an idea, considering von Mises and Hayek could not conceive of such technology? So, a great question, by the way. Um, so, Mises, Mises' critique of socialism goes like this. If we abolish the private ownership of the means of, of production, which all flavors of socialism do the same thing, there's the private ownership of the means of production is abolished. It means that we can't have exchange for those means of production. And if we don't have exchange, it means that we can't have prices. And without prices, we can't calculate costs and revenues and profit. And if we can't calculate profit, then there's nothing that's guiding production to be economizing. Uh, economizing means to attain the highest valued ends and forego the lowest ranking ends. So we would just have chaos in production with, without profit guiding entrepreneurs and, and that necessarily that necessary like it's like a compass or a guidepost for entrepreneurs to seek profit and what it's important to realize that it's not just profit for profit's sake but what does profit indicate it means that you've taken low valued factors of production and you've converted into high valued consumer goods so people were willing to pay a low price for the factors of production but, but consumers are willing to pay a high price, rel relatively speaking, doing that comparison for your output, which means that you've economized. You've taken low-valued stuff and turned it into high-valued stuff. So it's not just profit for profit's sake. It's What's important is what profit means. And what profit means is that we're economizing our use of resources, which is great. Okay, so <clears throat> the reason why this critique is great is because it, uh, it overcomes the incentive problem. So the, the most common critique of socialism is the who will take out the trash critique. So like if we're all getting paid the same, then who's going to be the garbage man? Who's going to study up and be the, the brain surgeon with the high risk job and takes many years of schooling to do that? Who's going who's gonna to do the dirty jobs? Who's going to clean out the, the septic tanks and all that sort of stuff? If we're all getting paid the same, then I'd like to be a food critic. I'd like to be a movie critic. That, that'll be my job if we had socialism. So that's a very common critique of socialism. Uh, but the socialist response to that is, well, we'll have a new socialist man. So after we impose socialism, after socialism is implemented, human nature itself will change. Well, so it's very utopian in that sense. So once we implement socialism, people's incentives will change such that they will do the right thing for their community. They will care about their comrade. They, they would be glad to take out the trash. They would be glad to clean out septic tanks. Um, they'd be glad to do all these things that nobody else wants to do because they're helping their, their fellow man. So Mises' critique is very special because it grants the socialists that argument. It says, okay, fine, have your new socialist man. We'll, we'll grant you that, that human nature itself will change once socialism is implemented. Uh, but Mises said that even if you have this society, you have this economy of angels, even if you have that, you still have this problem of not knowing what to produce, how to produce it, how long should production be, what capital goods should you use, what labor should you use, and all these various production projects. And the only answer is, well, you need profit. You need the ability to calculate uh, with money prices to figure that sort of stuff out. Okay. Now to your exact questions. I just wanted to set up what is the, the critique of socialism. You said, so Mises and Hayek existed before big advances in computers. And you're right, they did. 
And, but a lot of socialists these days say, well, now that we have artificial intelligence and quantum computing is on the horizon and there's this, these big increases in computing power, doesn't that mean that we can use computers to calculate the, the optimal allocation of resources and optimal production projects to pursue and all that sort of thing? Um, and the answer is still no. Well, I don't know what Hayek would say because Hayek's critique of socialism was based on the mismatch of, of knowledge that a central planning board doesn't have all of the knowledge that exists at the at the decentralized fingertips of the economy, the the man on the spot, as he said. But Mises's critique of socialism is different than Hayek's. Mises Mises's uh, critique was based on calculation, and it's not it's not calculation. In the, in the form of you need enough computing power to do calculation, it's calculation in that you need cardinal numbers. Like you, you need numbers to be able to do it. In, in order to say that like we need to, to use this many uh, engineers to design this irrigation system, uh, and we need to use you know, this much uh, fertilizer on this plot of corn, you have to have cardinal numbers. Like that's literally assigning a certain quantity of, of those laborers and that factor of production and all capital goes all throughout the, the economy. You need cardinal numbers and those cardinal numbers in a capitalist market economy system is figured out through the through cardinal cardinal numbers as well, which is the profit and loss calculation or anticipation. But if you suppose you use surveys or even like chips planted in people's heads and you're trying to convert people's ordinal preferences to the decisions that you have to make in an economy for an economy to work, there's a, there's a mismatch. There's a fundamental mismatch. You have ordinal preferences on one hand, and then you have uh, the, the cardinal numbers that you need to say, hey, you people go over there, and you people go over there, and you make this, and we'll use, we'll use these raw materials to make that. So you, there's just a fundamental mismatch between the type of information you have. So that's one, one response. The second response is that uh, you only see people's preferences in action. So even with the, the chip being implanted or the really efficient survey method uh, that they dream up, you still don't see what somebody prefers, apple or orange, until they actually have to make a choice between those two things. So, so what that means is even the giant supercomputer, just they just don't have the information that's needed to make those uh, economizing uh, production choices. So, so it's not it's not just a lack of computing power that's preventing socialism. It's a, it's a more fundamental problem than that, which is you need the you need cardinal numbers, and you also need for people to demonstrate their preference in action by actually making a choice. You can't just, you can't rely on people's self-reported preferences. You can't rely on somebody just saying, oh, I, I like this movie over that movie because we don't actually know their preference objectively until they, they have to make a choice. So, great question. Uh, Jason Kelly, I think I have time for one more maybe. Uh, Jason Kelly asks, in the theory of money and credit, Mises emphasized that money is not a measure of value or price or price index. He called these ideas entirely fallacious and unscientific. What did he mean? And how does this principle fit with the concept of economic calculation as laid out in Mises's famous demolition of socialism? Great question. So if, if we're going to say that we, 
we need economic calculation for production to be economized, for production to, to make sense and, and be guided in a market economy, then why would Mises say that we can't use money to, to measure, to make a price index? And the answer is actually a pretty easy answer. Money is a unit of account that we can use to, to add up costs and revenues. So we can, if you imagine a producer, they have some inputs in their production process and then they have some outputs. So they pay for their inputs. They pay their workers, they pay the, the landowners, they pay the, 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 all of the owners of the factors of production, including raw materials and other, other inputs in production. They pay a price for all of those things and you can count all of that up. You can count up all of the money that is spent on those factors of production and you get total costs. Like you just, that's, there's no uh, apples and oranges problem there. You can just count up all of the money spent on all of those inputs and get total costs. On the other side of the firm, they're selling output to consumers and they can count up all of the revenues received by selling that output. So like we made a $10 sale here, a $10 sale there, added up that's $20 of revenue. So then you have two numbers that you can compare. You have total revenue and total costs. So that's, they're commensurable, the, the units are the same. So that's what we mean by money being a unit of account where we can do economic calculation. We can calculate profit. We can't do that with prices though. So money is a unit of account, but prices are not a unit of account, which sounds sort of weird. But if you think about what a price is, is a, it's an exchange ratio. So when you go to the grocery store and you uh, spend $1 or $2 on a dozen eggs, that's $2 per dozen eggs. So that's the ratio, $2 per dozen eggs. And then you go to the next aisle over and you buy a loaf of bread. That's $3 for the loaf of bread. That's another ratio. There's no way to add those up. There's no, there's no way to... You can't make an average price based on those two prices because one is $2 per dozen eggs and the other one is $3 per loaf of bread. They're, they're incommensurable. Those, there's not a common unit there. So that's why Mises said that you can't come up with a price index. You can't, you can't use money as, uh, to make a price index that way because prices themselves are incommensurable. But you can add up all of the money spent on all of the, the factors of production and all of the money spent by consumers on your output and compare those. So those, that is a common unit. The money spent on those things is common, but the price that's paid for a dozen eggs and the price that's paid for a loaf of bread, just, you can't match it up. All right, well, I think I'm out of time. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope this was enlightening. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to, to hearing other Austrian economists on this series. Thanks.